0: Very welcome to Magazine 3 this afternoon. My name is Sara Shelstrom. I am curator for program and education here and therefore doing the collaboration with Riksutställningar and Grafikens HUS. We are so thrilled that we got the question to have this talk here this afternoon about collections and collecting since it relates so much to what we do here at Magazine 3. I will switch over to uh, Georgiana, so very welcome. Thank you, thank you, Sara. It's great to be here, I think, for me especially, because I think Magazine is one of the places that I followed most (laughs) during my time in Sweden, and one of the places that I return to quite often. I mean, it has this amazing collection, and the venues, and the staff, and this amazing stability, we were just talking, that is not very common where I work now. I mean, I'm not <laughs> talking about <it>. <laughs> 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 the institution <laughs> where I work, but more the field towards which I work. Because I'm Georgiana Sakia, and I work as Contemporary Art Manager at okay. art yes. so the Swedish Exhibition Agency in English. I'll just say a few words about how we work nowadays, uh, because I think a lot of you don't know about this new assignment that we've received in 2011, which is about developing the exhibition field in Sweden, if I'm to put it very shortly. Uh, we work mainly towards institutions, so that's everything from cultural heritage museums to art associations. And in this work, we are supposed to put a certain amount of priority on contemporary art, the development and dissemination of contemporary art. I also get to collaborate with institutions like Grafikenhus, who, I mean, one year ago, roughly, was destroyed by this terrible fire, which really destroyed the venues and the collection and the workshops, but obviously not the spirit. I think it's one year on the day that we received this question from you about doing something together, which several institutions could follow, something that others will benefit also. Of course, we said yes. (laughs) Here we are now at Magazine Tria, talking about collections. And I'm going to leave the microphone to Nina Beckman, the head of Grafikens and, and your talk about the series uh, of talks and about this fantastic panel. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Exactly like Georgiana said, one year ago, Grafikens a museum for contemporary fine art printmaking burnt down to the ground. The fantastic workshop, the collection of thousands of prints and artist books, all the produced art, from many exhibitions over the years, and the royal barn in Mariefred, all gone. Of course we were devastated, but very soon, with all the support and care from artists, other institutions, the minister of culture at the time, and of course our visitors, and all the artists I said also, we realized that we just had to come back to build a new Hus. My name is Nina Beckman, and I am the director of Hus since 2012. And we are doing this series together with Stellinger, like Georgiana said, and with uh, different partners today, magazine 3. I would like to welcome our eminent guests for the evening. Uh, Elvira Diangani osse curator at Göteborg International Binal for Contemporary Art this year. Yes. Very welcome. Thank you very much. For very happy me. to meet you. I <laughs> am. Sure. Uh, I'll go with the international guests first. <laughs> of of Apologize <laughs> for jumping course. over <laughs> you. Uh, Annie Fletcher, curator at Van Abbe Museum. And like I told you when I heard a lecture from you, I thought you said ABBA the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Van Abbe really. Museum. Van Abbe <laughs> Museum. <laughs> Anders Jonsson. Jonsson, sorry about that. Director and curator at Mann Museum. Anna Nudlander. very welcome. Thank you. And our co-host, David Neumann. 3. A very welcome to all of you and thank you, Magazine 3, for your generosity hosting us and also collaborating on this first uh, talk. Uh, thanks a lot. After the fire, like Georgiana mentioned, we met up very early actually. And together with you, Georgiana, me and Eva, my colleague. We wanted to investigate a couple of subjects coming out of our very extreme situation. Actually, the thought was kind of like a seminar series uh, where we could investigate for us relevant subjects in the process of rebuilding the content of Grafiken So the mutual talk led to this series of four talks. And the first one about collection is here today. I'll run them through shortly because you're all very welcome to all of them. The second one is about being without a permanent house and how a of situation can be an injection in the ordinary practice. That one we're doing together with National Museum and at Kulturhuset, where they are care of right now as one of their partners. In the third talk, we will challenge ourselves actually, which is a bit scary, and ask the question, do we need another museum? So that we will do together with Parken, that is a kind of a recent museum in Sweden. The fourth and last talk will be about fine art printmaking and actually the future what can that be and that we will do together with Eskilstuna konstmuseum so very welcome to all of the talks but let's start the evening the first hour uh, our guest will make short presentations and i'll try to be very strict with the clock we said that <laughs> and the second hour we'll have the mutual talk so david uh, please get started with your presentation
2: thank you i'm um, also very happy and grateful that you are all here As Nina said, part of a successful afternoon and a talk is with a a very kind of tough moderator, and that's what you're going to be. Magazine 3 was actually founded uh, in 1987, and it was uh, partly ideas that came from Robert Weil and myself, looking at uh, cultural landscape that looked quite differently from how it is today in Stockholm. Part of it had to do with this kind of need and an urgency to be able to introduce art that would otherwise not be uh, able to come to Stockholm. But differently from most other institutions, we had nothing when we opened. And I don't even think that we had a, a serious dialogue whether we would start to collect or not. 27, 28 years later, we have uh, a collection, and now my co-workers laugh because I always make up a number. But it's under a thousand, but it's more than 800. <laughs> Correct, Bronwyn? Yeah. <laughs> but it also includes, and uh, I will—I ha- already met some colleagues here that talks about their collections being in millions. But 800 works actually c- becomes almost between 13 and 15,000 objects. And I want you to keep that in mind when we uh, talk later on about private initiative, initiative from the federal's point of view or from the municipality. So here we are, we are in a space uh, which is quite a lot smaller than it is today and ideas of introducing art which we otherwise would think would not be able to come here to Sweden. Parallel to this exhibition program and I have 30 images, and some of them I will kind of present, others I will not. This first image I can talk about for about 30 minutes, but I'm not gonna do that. The work that comes from our collection is by the Cuban-American artist Felix Gonzalez Torres, and it's from another initiative, also private initiative, which is called Fondation Beiler, which is in Basel in Switzerland which was created by an, a quite extraordinary scholar and art dealer and had this wonderful uh, gallery. And as you could see, kind of framing our uh, our work by Felix, which was called for Stockholm. And I will get back to that because this is some of the core elements of Magazine 3's collection. The fact that so many works have been uniquely crafted and produced for us most of them here in Sweden, but also in other places. So you have these wonderful works by Barnett Newman, and then as as a kind of exclamation mark, you have this great Pollock painting. Then I do a jump, and I have an image, which is by the American artist Walter de Maria. And this is actually an image from 1988. And for you, that will stay a little bit longer. You have the possibility to to see uh, Tessas exhibition with Marcus Schinwald, but also some uh, other exhibition, which also Tessa co-curated by uh, three artists, Katharina Grosse from Germany and Saul Lewitt from Passed Away from the United States and Walter de Maria. And here you have an image, which is um, 27 years old. And actually the work, which is, in the image by Walter is on display now, uh, 28 years later. And it shows, of course, kind of simplified and, and uh, but I kind of like it, uh, uh, the strength of a collection, which means you can go into a storage and you can, with your ideas and your imaginations, you can p- actually put things together and you can revisit I think that was one of the key elements from the very beginning. And it had actually nothing to do with building anything comprehensive, anything in utter depth. It had to do with the possibility of revisiting uh, moments in time. I don't know why I have Gilbert and George, but just because (laughs) they are crazy. (laughs) Uh, So then I have the next image, which also is all works from our collection. And it's a juxtaposition with with, uh, works by uh, the American photographer uh, Cindy Sherman, that was also not that long ago, shown at the Moderna Museet here in a a very large exhibition, in a juxtaposition with a work by the uh, American artist David Hammonds. It's just a great image, and I also like it, the fact, because it it tells this story uh, again about what you can do when you put things together. I have personally a very ambivalent relationship to collecting. All these thirteen to 15,000 objects where Magazine 3 has, from the very beginning, not turned away from complicated materials or expressions. Uh, so it's light years away from the traditional collection where you have everything in, in wonderful padded spaces and you just pull things out and you look at them. It means that the responsibility of taking care of these 13 to 15,000 objects is tremendous. I won't say it keeps me up at night, it doesn't, but it clearly put the issue of what is collecting and you are a custodian for a very short time. And at the same time, you have a responsibility towards the artist primarily, but also towards history to be able to take care of what you have acquired. And that leads maybe later on to the discussion whether a lot of institutions nowadays actually acquire works together. And the the exclusive dimension of owning a work, it might not be as important as it was before. Here it's uh, again, a very early image by Felix exhibiting in 91 in Stockholm. And the very first image you saw was, was, uh, of course, his work at the Beiler. This is also a, a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm doing this little bit to kind of um, show how great we have been over the years. This is a work by Louise Bourgeois, uh, which is not in the current exhibition at Moderna Museet, but it was shown here many, many years ago. And I just wanted to say that, that some of these works have been acquired outside the exhibition program. And those are some of the ones that is on display right now. That's, uh, again, uh, a key work by uh, Edward Keenholz. Sometimes, of course, a collection. The parts of a collection adds to each other. And that's, hopefully, what we have been able to do for all these years here at Magazine 3, that if you single something out, it has an importance, but if you put it in context with, uh, with others. And, of course, my distinguished colleagues, we all know that, when we work with exhibitions, that, that it's the real challenge when it comes to creating exhibitions. I will probably be challenged on this issue. has to do with the next show, the next show where you have the material from your collection or where you put it in juxtaposition with, with other works. That's when it, the, the solar exhibition has its, surely it has its challenges and it has its relationship with the artist and so on but many times the next venue where you actually put it out of a context which you uh, created the parameters for. This is also from many years ago, and this is from now. And you can see that, that the fact that you work with all these works, is, is it's amazing opportunity and a tool. Uh, we also know, of course, that a collection has has a value, and and I'm avoiding the monetary value. I'm talking about the value when it comes to creating exhibitions, which means if uh, I borrow from you and you lend to me, that's a wonderful situation. And somehow, in a very kind of non-scientific approach, we know when we are looking at creating exhibitions that certain key works need to be part of an exhibition. And I think it's all uh, museum's dream to have at least a handful of those key works. That's really uh, the capital. To kind of summarize it, uh, Magazine 3 started as an exhibition space and have now become a hybrid of, of a museum with a very particular collection. Our strengths, and I think I can really say that has to do with our relationship with the artists. The collecting is a secondary aspect of our programming, but it allows us to revisit, to engage the artists, and to kind of collect the time memories. And, uh, and by doing that, uh, and, and also being slightly eccentric in your choices, the older I get, the more I embrace the difference. And the difference both from an institutional perspective, but also the fact that you should kind of perform and relate to your intellectual discourse, which is always developed within an institution, and try not to look too much at society's demands or, or hopes for you.
1: Thanks a lot.
2: You're welcome.
1: (laughs) So next up is Annie.
3: Okay. Um. So thank you everybody very much for having me here. It's really exciting to talk. I like to talk about collections, even if technically I'm not even the one in my museum to be in charge of collections, but we're a very small museum. We have about between 3,000 and 4,000 works. Again, something something around there. And our museum was established in 1936, so we're kind of in a good position, we feel, in the Netherlands in that we um, are a museum sort of purpose-built for contemporary art, modern and contemporary art. Not other collections per se, but we're a civic museum, a governmental sort of force, part of official culture, all of those things which make us think very seriously about what it is to own this cultural heritage and what it is to share it. What I'd like to talk very quickly about today, and I have a far too long presentation, but I'm going to kind of scan it a little bit, is the shift that we've sort of tried to make in our own thinking between an idea of ownership and an idea of usership. So really this idea that perhaps the collection is a thing to be used. Maybe this idea of collaborating, as you said, on buying things together, sharing things, but also what if you put something back after you use it and somebody else can take it? There are all sorts of interesting ways in which maybe we need to stop fetishizing the idea of ownership and rather think in much more sustainable ways about um, use. So I'm going to try and tell you how we got there. So this is a quick look at our museum from 1936. There's a new building. When the director came, Charles Escher, in 2004, he sort of really tried to think, could he split the museum in a slightly different way between temporary exhibitions and collection? Really in an effort to think, I think, about the nature of the museum and the nature of collecting very seriously. So we kind of really tried to isolate a certain set of ideas. They maybe sound very obvious, maybe even a bit naive, but there was a, a real idea of trying to name what a contemporary practice or thinking around a museum would be. So reflexive, experimental, hospitable, agonistic, maybe eccentric, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly able to kind of try to debate these things in a much more robust manner, not to feel again concerned about the fetishization of culture but rather its use and its use both as a thinking tool and in many other ways. So to cut a long story short we kind of split a lot of the activity between the old building and the new building, the old building bev- being for temporary exhibitions which were like solos and the new building really specifically being for collection. One of the first sort of patterns of events that we developed were what we called the plugins and the plugins were in this new building that was actually built in 2000, it opened in 2004, but it was a a, a building full of kind of postmodern irony. It's a kind of slightly irritating building in a way, because it was extremely labyrinthine, full of kind of, you know, like architectural jokes, dead ends, (laughs) things that went nowhere, sort of not particularly easy to kind of tell a narrative with. So again, this we thought was an interesting tool. So what became clear was then when one couldn't tell an easy chronological story with the collection, what other possibilities were there? And as usual, I think, in these situations, the people to ask often are artists, not only just to to make work, but to think with one institutionally, to think with one structurally about why it is we're making and sharing and discussing these things. So the example I just want to show you here is uh, Lily van der Stoker, who ended up working with us for a series of, uh, really just through a conversation with Charles, over a period of five years. First, he started to talk to her about the idea that he was, in this short history, the fifth director. You know, yet another white male, admittedly. But also, what would it be to be the fifth director? Is there a kind of statement that you make as this person? And how could he make it a more pluralistic experience, the purchasing, the the acquisitions? Which I'm sure many museums think about. And so, in talking to Lily, he was lamenting the fact that there was a shocking lack of women in the collection in general, and I'll show you a nice graph about that later. And he said to her, what would you do? Would you fill the gaps as if one could ever fill the gaps in a history? Or would you, if you could buy, what would you buy? And it started an amazing conversation where the first thing she suggested in relating to how much American work we particularly had from minimalist work, from conceptual work in the 60s, 70s, um, right up into the 80s with people like Mike Kelly, uh, Jason Rose, et cetera, this focus. She thought, I would buy some of those amazing women, like Valley Export, like Carole Schneemann, like Martha Rossler, I would try and develop another kind of relationship with the practice of a contemporaneous moment. And so the first room here is simply all of the back catalogue of all of the video works of all of these amazing women and a room that Lily herself designed for the work. Just quickly, this is a a local artist, um, Esther Tillemans, who's actually about to exhibit with us again. Every year, Lily would come back with a new suggestion for a woman artist in general, because conversation started like that and that we would purchase for our collection and she would make the room for. Continued with Andrea Fraser. And then with a really interesting artist who considers herself now to be a retired artist. Jave Verder is her name. She's a Dutch artist. And she created an algorithm, a way of gathering together as much work from the collection as you possibly could and shoving it into one room. <laughs> and it's a really quite an aggressive move. And I think our head of uh, collection found it enormously painful to do this, <laughs> to, to put the encore down below and, and to kind of jumble all these things in this way. But it was an amazing question to start to understand the collection as a whole in some other way, as a series of objects that might produce a different set of meanings if one showed them like this. And so I think this was very informative in our thinking. We did also Rachel Harrison after that. And then the grand finale was rather wonderful. She took our minimalist collection and decorated, as you can see, the Donald Judd. So it's the beginning of a kind of robust arrangement and robust engagement with the collection, maybe her use or her interpretation of work. To explain the, the plugins very quickly, we often this is a, a project by Maria Eichhorn, we often did solo presentations. So you could they could look like solo shows almost. We called the whole rhythm the plugins. So it was the idea that an artist might plug into another artist or might plug into the collection in a particular way would um, display their own work and the time frame of this sort of shifted so in that old building we over a period of six years i think five or six years had some of these plugins open for a year some for three months drove our marketing department crazy because it was never an opening you know and, and the whole way of branding you know the programming this for example maria eichhorn's contract work which was developed for the documenta of okui enwazor we all felt it was so resonant, you know, when the economy crashed and, and rose and it kept coming back as a really interesting and important work about money, about value, about contract, uh, the legal sort of existence of a work. And so it stayed up for five years. So we wanted to allow for all these things. The great thing about the collection is that one doesn't have to close the show in a way. So we wanted to try and imagine that the museum could be slightly different in its temporality and in its programming and in the ritual of how one would display. The other really important thing that affected us at the time was uh, our head of research was an archivist called Diana Franson, and, and she created what she called the Living Archive. And we see came to see this as a kind of um, a critical virus in the museum. When we would have temporary exhibitions and collection displays, she would look back into the memory of the museum and perhaps reflect on an older program that said something about similar issues maybe 20 years before. It always was really nice, because when Charles came first, he was full of, I'm going to do it differently, and nobody's ever done this before. And she would often say, well, I think you'll find <laughs> that you know, 25 years ago, Jan Lering. Or. So it was wonderful to start thinking that it wasn't just a collection, it wasn't just a set of practices, but it was a set of people, it was a set of memories, that the museum was lots more than just a pure art experience. And so these were the things that we wanted to infuse into the exhibition making, really. So um, another kind of uh, moment when this idea of the virus or the archive came together was when we actually tried to show and bring more and more archive work into the displays themselves. So this is a Frank Stella piece called Tuxedo Junction. And on the other side, there's lots and lots and lots of archival material available, everything from probably the purchase to letters. So if one wanted to experience more than just the work itself, this started to infiltrate our practice more and more. And these things threw up lots of questions for us that really caused us to kind of um, um, sort of push how we might work as a museum. Really simple things like who are we collecting? What's in our collection if we're a municipal space, if we are to serve the polis or the public? The idea of like when we mixed art objects and archive as if they were all the same, were they the same? Were we saying that the collection was the same as the archive? And I think we were actually. This was a big shift in our own thinking. The art object versus documentation, similar, similar question. The changing roles, the role of the director, the role of curator, the role of the artist contributing like Lily did to the buying for the exhibitions. All of these things were interesting to talk about. Narrative time versus everyday time. So there's a particular, indeed, the time capsule of the museum and the slowness or the... The acuteness or the incredible moment that artists generate in the singularity of experiencing artwork is very different than everyday time or, or explosive political moments and all of these things. And we were interested in how these things now perhaps infiltrate each other. The original versus the copy, this came up again and again in a moment of digitization, in a moment when something awful like this happens. Do we really need original artworks? How, do, how could we share things in other ways? How, again, could we use? The information and the work and I think these all started to just simply become you know valid questions in the 21st century and often deeply at odds with our own professional practices I think this was most of these questions came up with because we were fighting with each other or arguing about why this couldn't happen or why it shouldn't happen when we when we would use the collection in a more robust way or or would be forced out of our own comfort zones. So in a way, we sort of listed a, a sort of a series of problems or crises, and they became the way in which we decided to program. The white cube versus other code systems. You can already see that Lily started to try and play with that maybe in a very obvious way. And of course, the artwork versus the commodity. We did start to think about the material value. At one point, we made some amazing graphs of, of what it was when the collection as a whole was rising in value, what it actually might mean. I'm going to run through this, I'm not going to show this. is uh, Play Van Aba, which was a two-year program where we really only showed collection, with a lot of new commissioning, with a lot of discussions around what a historical show was, what, how to use the history of the collection in different ways. It was shocking for me because I was the curator of temporary exhibitions and was promptly told we weren't making any temporary exhibitions anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite a quite a, a crazy moment, but it was a fantastic moment because it was like w- it was the first moment where we all focused only on the collection, and at uh, thinking of its renewal in with artists from now. So it wasn't that we didn't develop new commissions; it was simply that we we really dug deep into the idea of what this was and stopped trying to enact ourselves as only a Kunsthalle. So. Going back into the essence of what that might mean, one of the first things we did when we were looking at these changing roles was we reenacted an exhibition of Rudy Fuchs from 1983, which was the summer acquisitions um, collection. He just—it uh, was just after Documenta, a moment probably where he was at the height of his kind of thinking powers, where he had been thinking so carefully about the idea of the juxtapositioning of works and disciplines. And it was fantastic for us. It was very simple in a way. We had these pieces in our collection. We could reenact this exhibition in its entirety, which we did with him. So, this is the same image from now. And against this, Charles then showed another project called Strange and Close, which was his suggestion that now, if he was dealing with the collection, he would not think of juxtaposition, but rather a notion of entanglement, that simply the way in which we experience life and the world perhaps is radically different. So these are just very simple examples of how we would try and use the collection to think through larger larger questions themselves. I'm guessing that was the (laughs) (laughs) alarm. (laughs) I I won't uh, spend too much time, I'll just quickly explain. um, We also looked at particular artists who were interested in the the raison d'être of the museum and the collection itself in that project. And a really wonderful moment, I'll just give you two very quick examples Of of like maybe more robust use or daring to kind of use the the collection itself was a project by Superflex uh, during this, this um, exhibition where we started to examine the museum as a time machine and they were fascinated by the obsession with the original, especially with some of the minimalist works, which were obviously in d- industrially produced in the first place, and the shift in the role of the artist uh, during that period and earlier, of course. So they d- developed a factory, a factory to make new Solowitz. So we made 15 new <laughs> Solowitz, and we had a lottery process and then people came and took them away and they went into their gardens and into their houses oh. and <laughs> various places. We also looked at models of display like Lina Bobardi, Maholi Naj, all kinds of ideas of what the museum does when it's putting all of these objects together in a room, what it says about how the public experience work, what kind of ideologies are at play in, in these ideas. And then finally, one of the things that came so important through when we were looking at this idea of the original and the non-original with the soloit was where sometimes the original is really important. We've been in a big discussion with a lot of different curators in the Middle East and we're trying to talk about the idea of active lending. So instead of always passively lending, when we get a letter from another museum, what happens if we generate a kind of situation with another organization or space where we say, in what circumstances could you work with our work or would you like to and how could we work on doing that? And so uh, we got the request from uh, Ramallah, the art school um, of Palestine, to, and they the discussion fr- with the students in Kaluturani there was that they would never get to see An original Picasso in Ramallah. And so we worked for over two years to try and make that happen. And there's kind of extraordinary moments of talking to, again, the professionals who kind of keep this structure in place about the transport and the insurance to a state that doesn't exist. You know, these things are technically not possible. (laughs) (laughs) And Charles also was talking at one point about having this great conversation with the insurance guy going, but it does exist, people live there and this impossibility on a professional level to imagine a kind of uh, a logic to it. So in my eyes, these are really the moments where we use the collection to test out ideas. And there's just so much potential in this idea. And I think it was really led for us by artists. Thank you. Super.
4: Thanks a lot. Okay. So Next up, Elvira. Well, thank you so much for having me. As you might know, I used to work at the Tame Modern until very recently and I also work at the CAM, uh, the Centro Atlántico de Arte Moderno in Las Palmas. And I decided that I couldn't come here representing any of those institutions, which gave me the opportunity, We gave me the opportunity at the time, in 2004 and later on in 2011, to be part of a larger, to to try to bring to a larger narrative ideas and works of modern and contemporary African artists. And I will talk a little bit about that in a second. But I thought that I had to confess that when I was uh, in conversation with Georgiana about this project, I never asked the title of <laughs> the, of the I, never, I was never told and never asked about the title of this meeting. And a couple of weeks ago when I saw that it was from chaos to inside, I realized that it will be very interesting to look at a couple of images of what a museum looked like years ago. No? And we're expecting uh, to experience when we were confronted with the space of, of that kind in the 19th, 19th century. And I wanted to use that as a way of also how sometimes people think in terms of the inside or the ideas of the Enlightenment as a way to organize um, uh, other's people's legacy cultural legacy memory artworks etc so i have st- some images living turqueses that are uh, drawings or pre-makings um, of 19th century leading to the, presen- the final, let's say, insightful, enlightened, sort of like presentation in museums such as the British Museum or what it became, um, the Louvre and, and also the National Museum, the Natural History Museum in London. No? But just to, to sort of like trying to think critically about this and I hope we have a chance to discuss about this notion of the chaos no? and what it means to bring order to a culture or cultural space. And and I have so many references that I wanted to talk and somehow trying to claim uh, the return of the chaos to the museum and to the notion of collecting. And I think uh, what you had done in Van Aven is to bring that to perhaps to the professional setting Mm -hmm. and using chaos or let's say something that gets unpack or is packed differently. Yeah. I really am I'm very fan of Play, for instance, Play Van Aven. I think uh, it's amazing what you were saying about usership. And also because that provides an opportunity when collecting, of thinking about collecting differently, bringing other works to the collection, questioning the certainty that perhaps um, before framed or shaped that particular collection. Like it was in the case, for instance, at the Tate, when you bring work of African art, which was actually the role I played there as a curator of international art with focus on modern and contemporary Africa. But also was the case um, of uh, the CAM, uh, in Las Palmas de Gran Canaria, that was born with the idea of the tricontinentality because of the geographical position of the islands in relation to Europe, America and Africa. Of course, they're a European island, but, uh, politically speaking, but they are in African soil, uh, geographically speaking, as you know. And that particular conversation helped me also to sort of reflect on my thinking and, and remember one of the exceptions of uh, a philosopher, a Spanish philosopher called Feliz de Asua when he was talking about the, um, let's say, the comfortable use of the art historian of lumping together all the objects found in the same geographic location, which ended up producing the art of that particular place. And I wanted to question that as a way of thinking in terms of Africa. And I just, what I decided today is to bring you some of the narratives that have um, somehow influenced my practice as a curator thinking. Oops, I don't know what just happened. Um, I was listening to you both and thinking of the idea of ownership and usership, as you said, but also the idea of the the exhibition as a way of collecting. And one of the things that can be said, I think, in terms of African art is that one can read African art or African modern contemporary art through the history of the exhibitions that have presented. And this is what I thought I would bring uh, to us today and just trying to illustrate the many possibilities in which people have tried to frame Africa within the context of sometimes international narrative, but also trying to define it through a specific work or through the work of a specific artist. I think testing and proving the impossibility of that attempt, No, One of the, the things that motivates me the most when I was at Tate was the fact that one had to think about an ideal strategy. What is that? And in order to do that, in order to think about how to bring um, let's say the cultural uh, specificity of a region to a national or international collection as it is the case of the Tate or as it was in the case of, um, of the CAM, one had to define what Africa is. And in order to do that, you had to look at the way that Africa has been defined by others in the PACs. So, in that sense, one of the reasons that I wanted to engage with uh, both at the CAM and Tate was this idea of providing a new conceptual framework for collecting, displaying and interpreting African art. And doing so, as you said, no, on the one hand, with the meticulous process of collecting, that's one, uh, integrating some of the stories and the aesthetics in which some of the African words were produced into the larger narrative of the collection, such as Tate, or in the case of the camp, because the idea was to show just traces of culture of this three continental narrative. It was just basically exhibition where um, the possibility of engaging uh, with a specific artworks to, to bring them to the collection, but without any attempt to elaborate a narrative about how that definition will, will be inserted in the of the collection. In the case of the Tate, of course, we had to create one. We had to have a a legitimate reason to do it, and so then we, we take them to the task to look at what we, were we wanted to do. No? And in order to define that, you had to think about what is Africa, no? and in that sense we, we agree, and, uh, and this is my uh, perspective on it, that um, Africa is a complex construct no? that is partly an invention and partly the affirmation of cultural characteristics, shared experiences and values and how also that idea of Africa have been shaped, and this is not my idea. uh, If you have read Valente Mudimbe, you know about his uh, magnificent book, The Idea of Africa, and many other scholars that follow with him. And how there are like three major narrative, and also how those narrative uh, somehow mark uh, what is is the way in which Africa has been displayed. And you have now, uh, for instance, two exhibitions, one that was in the 30s and another one that was in 2013, in which there is this position of the West being uh, the one establishing, let's say, a narrative or imposing a narrative towards the discourse of African art These are projects that question, for instance, the the authenticity of the work of an African artist that uses the techniques of style, and they are talking about this idea of a classificatory method that has to do with the Western pattern as a guide, or that is looking uh, at the, uh, the nostalgia for the tradition base or self of anonymous and even objectified artists. And I wanted to use this too because What was certain for Charles Raton uh, in 1930s could be exactly the same conclusion that the curators arrived uh, to when they produced the show for uh, the Kevran Lee in 2013, which was curiously enough. You you will think that all these decades would have changed the way that people think about that. But we know uh, that is not the case. So as I was saying, again, there's uh, countless uh, examples of uh, This is sort of under anthropological uh, scrutiny and ongoing discovery that African art has served a purpose too, even when trying to make it into a comparison between, you know, what was, uh, let's say, the masters of a specific era, such as uh, the the turn of the century, within this uh, show of primitivism at MoMA, it is again an unbalanced uh, presentation of what uh, the African art could bring to the conversation and where modern artists sort of like extract from from that particular moment. And what is interesting here is that one of the things that I wanted to do while I started at the TED was to challenge that. I needed to bring a sense of, uh, we thought that it would be interesting to bring a sense of history, where the characters that were also working at the time, that people like Picasso, Giacometti and others with uh, Ferran Leger, for instance, were looking at African art and African aesthetics in order to engage with that understanding of their work. And of course, you find people like Aina Onabolu that was working early in the century in Lagos, Nigeria, and many other artists in modern times that could be presented together not because of the sense of an aesthetic that refers to both in the same way, but because they are the traces of that particular moment. And, and in the case of Aina Avolu represent the same sort of legacy that Picasso does for uh, uh, the Western art or the universal art, uh, because of the, uh, the importance of him looking at a different culture in order to engage with, uh, with uh, his practice. No? What is interesting also is that uh, so you have you you get the idea of of one of th- some of these exhibitions I was saying that are of this uh, primitivist trajectory right uh, then there is a second uh, type of exhibitions also where where projects concern uh with other issues such as race, otherness representational politics, cultural identity. That joined the debate on uh, authenticity, Africanness, and Blackness that were uh, on an, uh, already on stage, and these were projects uh, where, in most cases, were led by uh, non-Western artists, curators, and thinkers, uh, bringing, let's say, this idea that the others became uh, not only the subject of a narrative but also. Uh, his or her own narrator, no? and what I think is interesting in all these projects is that they define a way in which uh, I wanted to work with the collection in those particular places to bring stories that could go parallel to to all of that. Very quickly, um, there is a third uh, series of of projects in which. There is a more sophisticated attempt, for instance, to talk about issues of diaspora, to talk about issues in terms of um, the choice of the artist to live in beyond the country of origins, et cetera. Also, this is another aspect that you bring to the collection, what is an African artist, what it has to be called African every time that is named when other artists are not named that way. And that, for me, was also very important in order to, to bring a different discourse. I have here Africa Remix that somehow also is placed in the narrative of uh, this sense of impossibility of trying to define Africa and Africanness within the context of both exhibitions and museum collections. Uh, We can talk later in the debate if you want about the difference between museums in the States and museums in Europe and museums in the continent and also what artists have done to formulate the notion of uh, an African museum as such. But I wanted to mention this idea of the mega show, of, of mega exhibition that is a concept that Ockwin Wesser developed to talk about a large scale project evolving with a narrative of their own. And they are, perhaps the ones that have helped the most museums to think about possibilities of bringing several stories of episodes and moments uh, of African sociopolitical cultural development and how they can be uh, somehow put it in dialogue with uh, other uh, moments in the history of art that we know. No? Basically, another aspect that was interesting for me too was questioning the presence of these artists in International Arena in the past. So in the 60s, 70s, there were so many exhibitions, including this that you can see here in ICA, in London, uh, in which an artist such as uh, El Salahi was present together with Valente Malangatana, the Mozambican artist. And one question, what happened afterwards? Why all of a sudden all these artists disappear? And when you scratch a little bit for, Probably the decades of the 70s, 80s and 90s, most of the artists that were part of this international narrative in London, uh, particularly those of African origins (laughs) and those part of the Commonwealth, were in the Commonwealth Institute. So how also there are moments, political moments, that define the way that these artists are uh, displayed and and collected. And of course for me it was a a very important uh, moment in in my experience at Tate when I had the possibility to work first of all to collect one of the pieces of uh, El Salahi, which is the one that is somehow presented in detail here, The River Sun of Childhood Dreams, but also to work with my mentor and colleague uh, Salah Hassan uh, in the presentation on the iteration of the project in London. Just gonna finish with this image of Meshas Gaba's Museum for African Art, talking about chaos bringing back to, um, and I want to somehow claim the notion of the chaos as a good thing, as a positive thing, the notion of the disorder as a positive thing, the, the notion of being dissident as a positive thing. No? And, and perhaps Meshach and his idea of almost a biographical, uh, organic uh, museum in which 12 different rooms, including library, humanistic space, draft room, the music room, the shop, etc., calling to question the notion of the Western notion of the museum, the bourgeois museums, that was particularly uh, emphasized with the notion of the insight and the notion of the alignment. And and I want to use it as, um, as a point to, to finish my um, presentations about how one can look at African art, which is, perhaps extremely relevant locally you know and certain artists that are extremely relevant locally how one can make that uh, relevancy also fundamental for the international narrative thank you Great. thanks a lot
5: thank you for having me my name is Anders Jonsson and I'm working at MINM museum in Malmö, which is a regional museum in Skellefteå Sweden with assignment to work with contemporary art and gender-related issues. I'm going to show you four images, which uh, is mainly uh, uh, documentation from different educational work that we've done, um, but it uh, gives you a chance to look at something other than me. To give an introduction to the collection at Museum Manuel lander it's also an introduction to the museum itself, because in some ways the collection is a story of a collection that no one really asked for or no one really n- knew what to do with. It's uh, also an, uh, a story of a museum that is based more on than anything on it. P- uh, it's an idea that that sparked something. Later on also come to change all the perspective that we have on our own collection. Museum Allander started, uh, the whole process of Museum Allander uh, started um, in the 70s when the city of Schleft just celebrated its 100 years anniversary. And uh, the city then bought 40 paintings and drawings by this artist, Anna Lander, who grew up in Skellefteå and was one of the first women that ever attended and trained at the Royal Art Academy here in Stockholm in 1866. These uh, paintings Deborah talks about creating sort of a Anna Lander room or a special wing at the local historic museum. But no one really fancied that idea of a static room that never changed. And at the same time, there was a pretty vibrant discussion or debate in Schleftio regarding art and uh, regarding historical representation. There had been this investigation that shown for that for the last uh, 23 years, uh, the city had commissioned more than 60 public artworks and uh, out of those less than 10% were awarded to female artists. In 1881 the exhibition Vi arbetar för Livet, or We Work for Life, which was one of the f- first larger uh, Swedish exhibition of feminist art, was shown in Schlefteo, which t- fueled on this debate regarding not only female representation within public collection but also regarding women's representation or marginalisation in art history. So when Museum Manolander opened in 1995, it was with the purpose of collecting and highlighting women's art. And the basis of this collection was made up of the works of Anna lander But there was this intense process of making, <laughs> creating a larger uh, collection. So the collection grew very fast through targeted purchases, but also a lot of donation and uh, depositions, long-time loans. This collection was pretty much uh, all it was. And then it comes to this point when the museum evolves, and it evolves through Practice. It was shaped by art historians involved in these projects, like Barber Mester. But the key thing was a very large-scale educational program that was initiated by locally recruited educators. When I started as a curator in 2008, I came roughly six months after the museum had secured its own space or gallery. So for the first 13 years, we had no venue. The museum had no venue. The museum was sort of a pop-up museum. We participated in in different events and creating uh, exhibition and uh, hotels and shopping windows and a lot of in the public space. And this was mainly based with collaborations with national and international contemporary artists and pretty much site-specific. So it was a nomadic museum, pretty much and it developed a curatorial practice that necessarily didn't correspond very well with the fact of being a protector or a carer of a historical collection. So working in these different environments, uh, allowing the museum to take different shapes, allowing artists to experiment with uh, various forms of communication and mediation, I think in some ways it proved very successful for the museum to be implemented within the art world and it also proved very successful to go where the audience was uh, rather than trying uh, to make them come to our museum and see our collections. One thing it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a static museum. Um, Today we have this specific assignment uh, when it comes to working with contemporary art uh, and gender related issues. We don't call ourselves uh, like a women's art museum anymore and I don't think the founding purpose of the the museum was to create this safe haven or nature reserve for, for women artists. Uh, but there was this risk of that a women's art museum would consolidate the difference, that you still make a difference between artists and female artists. Kind of like this uh, image, this is th- the women uh, lying on the, on the ground here. They're working within social services in, in Schleftio and they came to do a workshop with Natalie Djurberg, and they hated it. <laughs> it really hated the <laughs> exhibition, but they started to work in, in this workshop, and they used all these uh, headlines that you saw, and uh, they sort of gained inspiration and created these images and the headline was um, personalen all and oversho has been overrun yeah like yeah. stuff like that so um, and that was exactly what it felt so it's it's also a, a, like a political statement that it's a, a red and a blue car running these social workers uh, over yeah but For the last 15 years, uh, our collection and the way we collect have changed. In the beginning, the museum pretty much accepted anything that was given to them. But the works that have been added on the later years has mainly been works that have been made by artists that we have collaborated with. So in that way, the the collection is also a reflection and a representation of the museum itself and the practice that we do. So it's not much uh, an attempt to tell like the whole story uh, of uh, art history. Naturally, the collection is dominated by female artists, It's dominated by feminist art from the 1960s and today. Still, we care for the the works that are from the uh, 19th century, early 1900s, which poses uh, interesting questions. Um, There has been this challenge of integrating the museum's collection uh, in our everyday practice. we have regarded the collection as an organic thing. It will develop over time. The purpose of the collection will change over time. The uh, influences of the people working within the museum will affect what kind of uh, works that are uh, selected. And it will change how over time how society changes and develops and with all its current events. But we have the, the ambition to use the collection as a sort of like an active reference generator. To be able to discuss art, not merely promote art. We're not the cheerleaders of our collection, but we c- can use it to <coughs> criticize it and sort of like generate discussions and, and debate. Anna Rolander is a typical example, uh, which has this uh, sort of what do you call it? Yeah, she's a local hero, and uh, she is a big symbol uh, uh, for Shaleftio, but perhaps not in the extent that local historians have uh, put her out to be. But it's time to fusing this with uh, different uh, exhibitions and projects could be a great foundation for raising questions regarding what a museum is, forms of collecting and how we interpret this collection.
1: Thanks a lot for very interesting presentations from all of you. We will go deeper, but I will start actually with posing one question to each of you. So uh, I'll start with you, Elvira. Uh, what is your favorite collection in the world and why?
4: I need more than uh, a life to respond to that. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know if I can uh, even start to think about that. I I, I believe that one of the most interesting aspects of a collection, any collection, and and perhaps a more fun, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this among colleagues that work with fine arts. (laughs) But I'm gonna say nonetheless. <laughs> um, but I'm more fond of the, let's say, the cultural museums. Oh. I don't know if you have ever been. Just coming is is one of my favorite museums, which is the District Six Museum in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, a museum exposing a community, and all the sense of ownership and, and usership that Annie mentioned before are very clear from the perspective of a museum that is trying to build a history of uh, people displaced uh, from their neighborhood during the 1959 Act, uh, 50 Act, during the Upper Regime in South Africa. And what is beautiful about this is that it's a museum that started with a community that wanted to create a different sense of nostalgia, if you want, to bring together narrative of many individuals, building up on those narratives to create a collection and, uh, and a story of what that neighborhood um, was. Imagine that there were more than 60,000 60, people moved out of their, I mean, re- the basically spell from their houses and living in uh, what later on were some of the most important townships in, in Cape Town. And that for me was one of a beautiful experience to enter there and one of the aspects that is part of the collection actually and one of the activities that they do is to walk around the old neighborhood, which is still in many of the areas um populated and just just pieces of empty land. Uh, to work with some of the the people that live in, in that space, um, in that neighborhood and to go around um, and trying to sort of like picture in your mind the memory of of that neighborhood, what it was, the music they used to play, the children's, you know, um, playing in the streets, uh, the story before the moment where their life and the history was cut Mm -hmm. and stopped because of this brutal um, um, discriminatory Mm -hmm. act. And that will be one of the kind of things that I love to go and Mm. see, but there are so many museums in the world, so many museums (laughs) (laughs) home, I like.
1: I I feel straight away, (laughs) I want to go there. This is
4: terrible, this is a terrible, a very uh, political question. (laughs) But this is one of the the stories. But that's a
1: lovely example, though. I'll ask uh, Annie, uh, I mean, you kind of touched that, of course, in your presentation, but what is the most important with having a collection, according to you? I think it's it is this chance
3: to to look again and again and again. you know it's this chance to um, compare contrast. It's a chance to also, as curators. I mean, I think for me, I trained in that very new generation, and l- not so new now, but uh, d- uh, 20 years ago, of curating, which was very much about producing the new, producing the moment. Uh, you know, there was a huge fetish, in a way, of presentism, which I think is really now we can look back and think it's utterly neoliberal. And you know, and we <laughs> contributed to that uh, happily. And there was something for me extraordinary about the idea of having to delve into the collection and take responsibility for what we were producing in some way. So for me, I think it's the ability. The possibility to read rather than what it might be that's in the collection that's so exciting, which is also could be an archive, which also could be a library. I, mean, I can think of Warburg or Marot or these possibilities to compare information, the, the emancipatory potential of being able to read the image against another and in a context. These are the things that, that kind of excite me. Mm. It's a rather nerdy answer. <laughs> no, well I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good
1: answer, though. David, uh, I just actually was curious, which is the first purchase you did for the collection?
2: I think it's um, very likely a work by uh, uh, Chamberlain Mm. after visiting him uh, in the early 80s. Mm. Um, He had a huge uh, hangar-like place in in Sarasota in Florida, where he drove around on on a big truck looking, it was like, I think, an old airplane hanger. And, uh, and then he picked parts that he then, you know, welded together and so on. So I think that's uh, one of the very earliest works. Mm. No, ac- yes, it is. It's it's one of the first works I acquired, but mm. one of the earliest work in the collection is by David Smith, okay. which is from the early 60s, mm. from a body of work that he, he uh, which was, uh, he made for Spoleto, for. A festival in 19, in you know, early 1961.
1: And was it like sort of your heart started to beat more quickly when you, <laughs> Yeah, front of
2: I think as I, but it's such a long time ago, it's almost an hour ago. But as I said <laughs> in the <laughs> beginning, uh, part of this is of course, which I think is, is a common practice when I hear my friends talking about this. It's, it's, it's the fact that the meeting with the artist, if you are, fortunate. It embodies both the eyes and the ideas and the books and the thinking and so on. And of course, to be able to, to view a practice. Yeah. And th- by doing that, it's once in a while or quite often, actually, gets utterly exciting. Mm. And then the reason to incorporate something after, as in the case here, Primarily working with artists, it's not a big decision. It's it's uh, it's very simple.
1: Mm. Anders, I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of a big a question, maybe, but <laughs> how would you like to develop your collection in the future?
2: More yeah. donations.
5: More <laughs> donations. <laughs> uh, that is a big question because I think it's uh, also. I got really intrigued by the the coming talks. They always ways t- to. Develop the collection, but at the same time we have this question: Do we do we want a collection? Mm-hmm. Do we need a collection, and, and why is it there? Um, well, I think it's it's the main thing. I think it comes back to w- what you guys were saying earlier about how ways of of, of uh, using the the collection mm-hmm. and also giving people access to it and uh, allow them to u- different parts to use it. We work very closely with the Slavstew Museum, and we always have this. Debate regarding, you know, the purpose of the collection. We're collecting for future generations, and you yeah. know, we can't handle the works in, uh, artifacts in, in all the ways that perhaps we want to. But when you look back at it, then again, at things that have been put in the collection many years ago, if it was for future generations, it was for me t- to use. Uh, I think that uh, that is what I want. I want more access- accessibility. Is that the word to it? Because I think that's the opportunity of, of giving, if it artists, curators, like people from the public, to have access to it. Uh, you know, you you gain a lot of knowledge about it, and you get different interpretations, and that's always a good thing, especially comes to art. That every interpretation builds on the knowledge of that specific work and puts it in different contexts and so on.
1: I think we can come back to that because I think you and have a lot of interesting example how you use the collection in very different ways, and not at least thinking about the audience. Thank you. I can, um, Elvira, I, I wanted to talk a bit to you about the history writing, because uh, I think that's also a bit of a theme at mm-hmm. Kipke this year. And uh, I think it's very interesting. I read an article with you where you post the questions like, can we as individuals and collective influence the history at all? And if we get the chance, what will we do? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very big responsibility as well. (laughs) And also being in the positions that not at least the four of you are. How do you think about those Mm. things?
4: Well, I think uh, making exhibition and particularly collecting is part of this history writing. I think that's what we do as curators, as uh, director of institutions, etc. And what I think is, um, and at least uh, there is a beautiful—I don't know if you know—Audre um, Lorde, uh, the beautiful poet from the U.S. She used to say, "No, I'm a, I'm a warrior. I'm a poet. Um, I'm a, a female poet doing my work. Are you doing yours?" And I took the chance to do my work, which was at the time, even before I could consider myself a postcolonial subject, was to try to, to see who I was. No? And in in that conversations, I get to enter uh, and and get to know the work of certain artists that were dealing with these issues of history making. That what for me was interesting in most cases was not only the fact that they were highlighting certain voice or silence within history, but the fact that they were challenging the history making in the first place. The history that has silent those individuals or those memories in the first place. And in a way, what I had tried to do with my participation in these two museums to create a new exercise around collecting o- a new interpretation and display for instance, of modern and contemporary African art is actually question history writing, questioning the way that our history was presented to um, the people in the UK, in the international audience, through the collection at the Tate, for instance. No? In some cases, this is not just because they wanted to, they didn't want to present those artists uh, within the context of a larger narrative, in some cases it was because of opportunities uh, or lack of opportunities or lack of knowledge, and you built on that. So in a way the responsibility that you mentioned, which we all face by the way no? in, in our little things mm-hmm. as curator but also the viewer. Um, uh, that's why one of the things I like the most about Ban program with the play uh, when you give the user the possibility of mm-hmm. choosing mm-hmm. works that they would like to see on display. I think this is also because we have the no, we are the public trust. We have that responsibility to create things for the future for the future generation, but also for, the, for all of us to enjoy now. One has to be very conscious also, where are the messages of the narrative we are building mm. when we present a collection, when we display certain works of different areas, or, you know, f- or for a social diverse audience. All these key questions, I think, are part of that.
1: Because mm. I think you also talk about the marginalized uh, uh, stories, if that can also challenge uh, the history. Uh, if we, uh, I guess, uh, guess enlighten that. Well, I mean, the key thing here, and that's why my
4: uh, allusion to the notion of the chaos and the Mm insight, is to think who is the one making the narrative and for whom, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about that without necessarily trying to create a niche culture, what will happen if you all of a sudden question what has been presented to you as certain, always, constantly? And you say, okay, let me embrace uncertainty and say that whatever they have told me I am is not who I am. Or whatever they have told me is a definition of African art according to Western uh, museography or s- historiography is not such thing. Mm. And and I always um, had the, I mean, I had an amazing experience in my uh, short career, because I'm very young, (laughs) my (laughs) short career as a a curator, Curator. (laughs) 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 that I encountered so many artists, both uh, within the Western and non-Western culture, that had questioned the places that they are, the cultures they are producing from, etc. And and that, for me, is a key. Not to use the marginalisation or silent stories, etc., but the people that is really trying to challenge the, themselves. Uh, some of the uh, artists discussing the using museum as an uh, inspiration, or discussing, as you were saying before, the raison mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. museum. Our artists are questioning the institution of art as such, and they want that place, that institution, that history to be something else. That is the thing that inspire me the most, and that is the thing where I believe one has a responsibility both as the writer and, and as an actor, let's say, a narrator of our own
1: history. No? Thanks. I was uh, thinking, David, I mean, you have a... The collection here is much younger, or if we compare to Annie's for example, is it even difficult to sort of look at the history of the collection when it's very short? Is it difficult to see it clear, clearly? And can you be critical towards yourself in the choices?
2: Of course one can be that, but to review the collection, or to look at it, and so on. Th- there is uh, different times, and and I think it's a very dangerous journey to start to look at things. I, I, yeah, honestly, there are a handful of things which I think are just too too private somehow in in the mm-hmm. collection, and it's sometimes. And I think we have talked about it many times. There are some things which, which are almost too private. I mean, they are in in scale and expression. They should actually be somewhere else and maybe not in an institution and then once in a while they make perfectly sense in an institution but otherwise if i review it we have uh, i I fought for very many years and still succeeded we have never done kind of a catalog of the collection we are slowly starting to release images and people can look at it. It, it primarily linked to our exhibition program. but not to the not to the collection in itself. It's not that we would turn away scholars or people that would really like to follow certain art. but um, it comes back to this ambivalence of the accumulation, mm-hmm. which has, uh, has more responsibilities than anything else. At the same time, as we were talking about before, there is this uh, liberating and fantastic feeling. And we did an exhibition not that long ago, which I co-curated, which showed, uh, because we have been over the years known for having uh, slightly impossible exhibitions or in scale (coughs) or in complexity. And here was a room with 69 works on paper, ranging from uh, mid 18th century up until uh, yesterday. And this was, as you were talking about, this was just this wonderful opportunity over quite a number of years to k- try to add something to an idea of, of, not of an exhibition, but the fact to ground some of the works in the collection and to ground them so far back that none of us w- were around at the <laughs> time. I'm not talking about, the, you know, the sixties or... or, or the 50s even but in, in during that time when the show was up also for a very long time for almost a year there was a, a true embrace from our fairly contemporary and young audience to really uh, look into these that you talked about wow they they did this in 1774 i don't i don't believe it yeah
1: because I also think sometimes, because you say you're a bit scared of sort of, start, I guess, making changes. But could you imagine letting go of some of the parts from the collection?
2: Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's, allowed. It's I guess it would be allowed. It would only it would only make sense for a, a really smart reason. Mm. I mean, not to pay for the electricity <laughs> and not to pay f- and not to pay for hardware, which oh. means buildings, mm. expansions mm. and all of that. I think mm. that would be very, very sad. Mm. But I'm utterly ambivalent when mm. it comes to it. And we have never done it. Mm. And I won't say we will never do it, but it's it is because because the friction, sometimes the mistakes or the mm. things that that's really when you come back to and then you realize that was not a mistake and that was really makes sense. Yeah.
1: And it's probably a sign of the times why you yeah. made that choice. Totally. At S- totally. Time. Yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. Annie, I want to move on a bit to sort of using the collection. Uh, you talked quite a lot of that, and all of you just jump into if you want to, you know, uh, say something more. But uh, if you would choose a special example where you really think you worked in a very good way, in a different way with the collection, what would that be from Fanabe? One is kind of your favorite? and. I think the easiest one to talk about sometimes is Picasso to Romala. Mm. But
3: there's another really interesting work that I I think we haven't resolved yet in our collection, and I really want to figure out how. And that's a work made by Petra Bauer and Annette Krauss, Mm. Petra, who's uh, from here, from Stockholm, which was very specifically around a very um, tense political moment, actually, in the Netherlands during a show we did called Becoming Dutch, which was directly challenging a very racist tradition in the Netherlands, though at that time it was extremely taboo to even dare to call it racist, uh, which is painting up or blacking up of the assistance of Santa Claus at Christmas. And it's akin to suggesting that you're going to crucify Santa Claus to even talk about this in the Netherlands because it's such a deep tradition. Anyway, these very brave women took on this project. One of them, Annette Krauss, was um, living in the Netherlands and was raising her child there. Um, um, And anyway, it was part of a big project we were looking at. What's been really interesting is we bought the work which was a film eventually that they made. The film was made as a result of a performance and uh, an intended film that they wanted to make that didn't happen because there was such an explosion in the press around the original performance of this work. That uh, we had, uh, we were inundated with death threats. Neo-Nazis threatened to come down and stop the march. And eventually, in the end, our director chose to stop the march on that day, and we decided to reconvene. Um, and then, of course, the art world was in up in arms because it um, it was censoring a work. <laughs> so it was like on every level, it was one of those amazing moments of kind of complete crisis in terms of uh, both the politics, the representation, and the responsibility of the institution, the artists. It was a wonderfully fluid and important work, and still is. And one of the interesting things about it was they also worked in a collaboration with activists at the time who had zero interest in what our responsibility was as a museum, and rightly so. They had their agenda, the artists had theirs, we had ours, and these were all coalescing and conflicting at different moments in in this moment of crisis. And so the film that they made in the end, I think, is an extraordinary one, which sort of describes this in a way, um, tries to talk about the issue itself, but also what occurred around this kind of institutional moment of crisis. We also had a very big debate. Sorry, it's a long <laughs> story. But basically, they Netta and Petra want us to buy the work, but they want us to maintain the relationships with the activists, and they want us to continue to to collect the successful moments around the eradication of Piet. And I think this is fantastic. I love the idea of this live political moment being incorporated (laughs) into the work somehow. And and in fact, there's been major legal protest. And in fact, I would say uh, many of um, the second, third generation black Dutch population in the Netherlands are angry and really importantly protesting now and will not back down. And this is an extraordinary change to the situation from 10, 15 years ago. So for all of those reasons, I think it's an amazing work. But I think this, n- this idea of the, the real life politics or the cumulative mm. political part of this work, as well as its representational mode, is fascinating. And I'd love to see how we can collect that. Mm. So we're in those negotiations. But I mean, it's we're very slow and sometimes so inadequate as a museum in dealing with this complexity.
1: But that kind of challenge to me sounds great. I think. Because it's, I sort of, when I listened to one of your talks uh, earlier, it seemed like you're very political. I think as a museum, a lot of the stuff you've done is very controversial and extremely interesting. Uh, is that kind of We're the very task? Specific.
3: You think? S- <laughs> 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 I think I think everybody's very ideological, and I think you know, even to, to claim one is not is deeply <laughs> political. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think we, yeah, we take our our role as being of the public and with the public extremely seriously. And absolutely, I mean, I think Charles comes from this heritage of in- institutional experimentali- experimentalism, which many other people, wonderful people like Maria Lind and others are busy with. So I think there's this idea of, of understanding that the, the institution is also a curatorial act, or it could mm-hmm. be. It could be, you know, and to experiment with this. And uh, and we're in a situation in the Netherlands where there's a lot of museums who all have fantastic collections. So we don't have to be all things to all people. So it is pretty idiosy- idiosyncratic. And, you know, and many people reject it and feel really uncomfortable with our finger wagging, etc. And I totally understand. And I don't think that's what we want to be. But, you know, it's a constant thought. But I think, um, yeah, I, I mean... We really want to think that that notion of radicality is about the roots, you know really the w- what is the existence and the the potential of this institution somehow
2: but I, I, here I, I want to object to mm. it because I think that the radical uh, which might be have to do with approaching a s- subject matter from a civic point of view, I feel very differently. I feel the radical action comes from within the arts, uh, whether we exhibit Santiago Sierra or make an exhibition with Tino Segal, And uh, this is why it's so wonderful to work within the arts that you don't necessarily, not all the time, need to flag this in front of people. You can actually send a message which has um, fantastic strong political connotations and still still be comfortable within the arts. So when Santiago Sierra lights up the import company for bananas here in Sweden and the banana company realizes that something is going on, but they are so clever, so they do nothing. He just lights it up and by lighting this building up 24 hours a day, he says look at this Mm. with the production or the culture when you uh, produce bananas and and all the pesticides and all of that. And this Santiago did about two years before this movie that came out Mm. that kind of put put some of the big uh, companies uh, um, against the wall. And uh, I just want to add one thing when it comes to collecting, for example, uh, we did a show a number of years ago with Tino Segal And just to uh, tell the story that when you acquire something from Tino, there is no bill of sale. There's no invoice. Mm -hmm. There's actually nothing that you buy. Uh, You buy a right to reproduce the work that you have had, which is a performative work. And you are training people within your institution to be able to interpret uh, Tino's uh, uh, instruction and Tino and he's the only one can give the seal of approval that you have understood the work and uh, when we acquired this work which was a, a wonderful uh, dinner and, uh, and and we acquired a work by, by Tino and, and there was no contract there was nothing and then we had to actually <laughs> pay him something <laughs> and uh, which was kind of clear what he wanted I was challenged by our accounting people that said, OK, we can send this money, but give me an invoice. And I said, no, I can't. <laughs> he, he refuses. Uh, um, you, we, we just have to trust this. And at the event of transferring the title, uh, we had to have a person that was a, a law person that was knowledge about law, uh, but he had to be a friend of ours. He could not be for hire. And the whole uh, kind of transfer of of this work uh, came into Magazine 3. And I still think I would be challenged by some people within our organization. What is it that you really (laughs) acquired? But uh, (laughs) taking that as part of a collecting and part of an expression of of a certain level of, of maybe not radical, but at least not very traditional, and then going to works from uh, which are basically only constituted by a certificate, by a letter, by a drawing, uh, wall drawings, or, or something like that. I think uh, the range of, of collecting for you I- in the future uh, is a massive challenge, mm-hmm. but you can really, if you start with the uh, moment of the visit, whether it is in your own space or as we heard examples of in other, it's it's endless. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we realize it's going to be a big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very glad to have you all in front of me. So I can ask you for even more advice when we finished. finished. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking actually to what you said earlier, you said about also being political. Do you think it's a personal thing or has it also got to do with if you're a private institution versus a governmental one and actually the tasks you are given? Or yeah. is it more the way you as a person look upon
2: well, it? It's both. I mean, as being a director... Uh, uh working with a a brilliant team of people we discuss this all the time i'm not avoiding the political what we call political issues within the arts but i think there is if you talk about radical expression i think i'm very pleased with the fact that you have a lot of that uh, within the arts and it's just what you talked about it's putting it in a context and that's so interesting when you uh, when you show the image of a privatism at, at the MoMA. Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. That's when you look at the, at that time, of course, the view of Africa and, and, and all of this. But I'm pleased with that there are so many challenges within the arts that some of these institutions, and that's another point, we should be different Mm -hmm. and you came back to that in holland there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. and in stockholm within the last uh, 10 years we have had a lot of private initiative and the institutions are also changing the well the interesting thing is of course that there is diversity Mm -hmm. and the diversity um, creates a lot of different mm-hmm. thoughts, so... so I think
3: uh, just to, uh, uh, exactly this issue of diversity is really important and maybe uh, something about this idea of private money on one level. One thing that seemed to become really obvious about ten years ago with the explosion of art activities and art markets was that art museums that were publicly funded were aping the activity of the art school, uh, private museums were doing museology better than, than other. You know, w- there was such an explosion of the activity, I think it's really good to redefine what it is you do well, or why you do it. The other thing that makes me a little nervous about the idea of leaving it to the artist is the danger of instrumentalizing them in relation to how capital flows mm-hmm. and the the need for a kind of ethical transparency
4: around that. That's the only thing I'd say. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, and I agree with you. Um, but I, I wanted to go back t- for a second mm-hmm. to what you were both saying about being radical and thinking about collecting from that radical perspective. No? Because when I joined Tain for instance, in this particular case, um, because I had to create the strategy together with other colleagues about what will be the way in which they will collect and I guess this also the sense of nervousness that you were opening up not to a new field because of course it existed for such a long time but within the context of that institution no? and what can be relevant to do there for instance like I was thinking uh, the moment where we bought uh, the first El Salahi's piece. And we put that, because Tate had before that had bought a lot of um, work, particularly from um, South African artists. uh, And of course it has uh, the presence of uh, blackness through the work of black uh, British artists and uh, uh, African-American artists. But when um, we bought, when we we acquired El Salahi's um, River Son of Childhood Dreams, and it was displayed on the uh, surrealism uh, um, uh, rooms, mm. uh, all of a sudden the reading of surrealism mm. changed. Amazing. I remember. Like it's it was beautiful. an unprecedented yeah. initiative, no? Yeah. Having uh, Wilfredo la German Ritter mm. and El Salahi in that particular place. It stretched the meaning of what surrealism meant, no? But also for me was very important and I was uh, talking about context to bring more aspect of what was happening in the continent at the same time, right? It is so easy for anybody within the institution to do a show on New Year's 1970s. And the fact that it's easy is because there is a lot of information about that. So you don't have to produce the context. So I was extremely eager to bring more context, to talk about things that were happening in the continent, to bring expertise, local expertise, to acknowledge uh, local history, and to bring somehow the here and now the collection, uh, sorry, of the um, African production as part of the collection as well. So projects like Across the Board, which were initiatives happening in the continent, were some sort of like join the acquisition process mm. as an attempt to do that.
2: But at, uh, at the same time, you starting out at the Tate, I mean, w- one, one has to, if you talk about the collecting mm. and about the work, it's a, it is also of course uh, a discussion and a discourse within uh, one of the most powerful institutions in the world, yeah. that one says it's not enough to have uh, some works which basically c- came from Africa via Paris, and then mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the collection, we have to do it something differently. But here in Sweden, mm-hmm. th- at the Moderna Museet, which was uh, first this dream museum where it was created, and then later uh, when Lars uh, Nitve was here, we w- one approached the whole issues of very few women artists mm-hmm. in the collection. At the same time, Sweden, having not the history of of the uk or or, or holland or something we nevertheless have a population here in Mm -hmm, sweden mm -hmm. which is between 17 and 19 percent that do not come from here Mm -hmm. so when they go to moderna museet or some other institutions they will uh, lack the same kind of of uh, of work uh, that you started at at the tate but Mm. we have another history because we don't have the elements of colonialism and all of that Mm. so uh but Did you have
4: your particular elements of colonial
2: history. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I think is interesting, and sorry to uh-huh. interrupt you, uh, I think because I'm, I'm very also very cautious and very nervous when we talk about social diversity in the way that is presented through the technocracy and the governments, etc. because that sometimes led to niche culture initiative, which for me are incredibly good if they are transitional. Right, if they are leading towards something in which we can sense, we can feel a sense of togetherness, mm-hmm. display. So, of course, it will be amazing that people that you know it is uh, uh, intenser can see themselves reflected in part of the collection that it is a moderna museum. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it has to be. What I think what is important is that they will go to moderna Musee, and no matter what it is in the space, no matter the experience of what they have, they feel they belong. Mm-hmm. Which I think is key. Mm. So sometimes not about presenting artists or artworks that deal l- with issues that affect these particular communities, but also bringing the museum in such a way that the community feel they are part of
2: it. Yeah, because that's a, a discussion of, of quality somehow. Yes. But you, if you talk about not the first generation, you talk mm. about the second or third or fourth generation, can you not demand that you will see something?
4: Of course, but that's what I mean, it's like, what I I will really be very sad, and I think it's not going to happen, that after, because one of the things that affect a culturally specific projects, when they are presented in a larger uh, institutional framework, is that they are the sense of newness, presentness that you were talking about is about the momentum. Oh, this is the year of African art. Oh yeah. In the UK only, they have lived like a 1995 Africa, a 05 Africa. Now Tate does these things. I'm, I'm worried about the tomorrow. I don't want it to wait 10 years, 5 years, or another interesting project to see those things on display. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, it has to be a transition that then becomes normalized, that then becomes every day that then becomes boring, if you want, because it's not new anymore. It wasn't new at the beginning, and it's (laughs) it's not gonna be new in the future, but yeah.
2: Growing up in Sweden in the 70s and and so forth, we we had the year of the DDR, we had the year of Poland. We were all kind of looked east and had all these exhibitions.
4: But I think one has to go beyond that and and start integrating those things in the larger narrative. Sure. So then,
2: you know. It's not about It's not about the African art.
4: Exactly, it's about (laughs) art and that's
1: it. And that is
4: the radical,
2: and that's the radical thing. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think that's super interesting. And I'm thinking also, when you say that, you have to sort of create that climate Mm -hmm. uh, for like these, also these 17% you were mentioning, for example, that, Mm. you know, aren't, uh, they don't feel they belong there. Mm. How would you do that?
4: Well, I mean, uh, first of all, asking them, Mm. for instance, like to get in touch with a collection that perhaps uh, because we, we, we think that just because you're black or you're taller or you're bigger or you're, you know, blonde and blue eyes, mm-hmm. you are interested in certain things. But perhaps you're interested in everything. So why you are not approached in that way? Mm-hmm. So why you had to create a cultural specific exhibition just for my entertainment?
1: Yeah. Mm. Right.
4: So I think, first of all, ask this community what they want. What they want to see and how they want to be reflected in the things they see. And then you start working. And perhaps, yes, it's through the experience, more experiential things perhaps at the beginning. I re- recognize that you know, in 10 years, what we did was Slightly initiative at the beginning, and to, you know, for two or three years at the Tate. In ten years, that will be seen differently, and perhaps there will be more monographic African artist shows, as well as other shows that and display that integrate those artists of those context stories within the larger narrative mm-hmm. of the collection. No? And that is set for Tate, that is set for every everywhere else. Now, but try not to create a specific mm-hmm. culture or approach to those people, mm-hmm. right? Those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that I will totally
1: take with me, though, because that's Uh. a very good way to go about it. Because also talking about I'm thinking about the audience. I mean, that sort of comes to all of you, and especially not at least working at the institutions. And also making the collection available. Is that very important? That the ordi- I mean, you have your project, where, as I understand, as an audience, you can yeah, say, "Yeah, but I we're look really at that.
3: bad at it." I think you know we're still trying to struggle from this idea of being a broadcasting institution to a to a listening and one in dialogue, and we don't. We all our architectures, all our activities, <laughs> don't don't understand that. You know, we're constantly faced with the inadequacy of what we what we have on that level. I mean, we're trying to do a really big project now for 2017 which is with um, a collaboration between several institutions of cultural heritage called the Internationale. It's like a confederation of museums, so the Moderna Museum in Ljubljana, the uh, Rena Sofia in uh, Madrid, Magba, if it still exists, okay. <laughs> the SALT in Istanbul, uh, the Muka in Antwerp, and the Vanaba. We're trying to ask these questions about what it is we own and to who, who are our constituencies. And we sat together about... Um, two months ago to really try and think about this idea of constituencies and who it is. And you know in, in the face of increasing what we hear o- alienation and, uh, and ideas of elitism that are played out, despite the fact that actually in Europe museums are a success story I mean audiences are increasing, etc. But that, that real engagement, and we were talking about crisis again, of course, and uh, climate change, and really this idea that we're in this, you know, potentially dramatic moment in 2050, maybe we'll be sunk, you know? And we had this thought, we, we were all sitting there looking at the Netherlands and Antwerp thinking, you know, maybe we'll be underwater, maybe these tiny little changes. <laughs> and if we were, who would care? That's the question. Who Who really, rather than this generalized audience, who would care? Who's a stake in this? And these are the questions that kind of excite me. But I don't we're nowhere near figuring them out, I think. So I for us, it's this, this idea of changing from broadcast, a broadcasting institution is the biggest challenge we sort of face.
1: I would like, lastly, to ask you, I- if you were to give Grafikens Hus and myself an advice in building up a new collection, <laughs> 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 though I have you in front of me, uh, <laughs> what would that be? And I would like to have an answer from all of you.
2: Same question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Same
2: question this time. And whoever so I go likes less, to start, less. <laughs> oh <yeah. laughs> can start. In terms, of in terms of the collection, I think the key element why people say no is because they never been asked. So I would start by asking as you did today and Mm. as you will do in the future. That's a very good thing. Then I would avoid as much of hardware as possible, Mm. uh, which comes to, uh, you don't have a building now, but if you have a building, you're going to expand the building. You're going to do thats That's ridiculous. Uh, That will just end up in a race for attendance and all of that. And then, of course, the sad, and we sp- we spoke about that a little bit, and 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 I have these memories when when where was it? The castle when the Queen Elis- that was on fire, uh, Windsor Castle was on mm. fire, and you could see the Queen Elizabeth carrying paintings, and everyone, and that's this sad story would ha- which happened to you, and of course, to try to duplicate that and all you had, m- I don't know, it must be more or less impossible so
1: and maybe the question is if you should no 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 uh, absolutely
2: i mean i i i think that the the the, the answer is no it's impossible and because it's impossible you can't do it and maybe you shouldn't do it and that is of course the discussion at the same time we all know whether we are the tate or or fan abbe or, or, or a smaller magazine that doesn't matter how much space you have, you can only show between seven and 11% uh, of what you have in your holdings, right? And we have some institutions here this afternoon, evening, and they have 10 million objects. <laughs> Go figure, what do you do with that? So I think, I don't know, but I think it's those are the key issues. And actually to also to say how important is this collection for for the programming it might not be important at all
1: thank you i like the end (laughs) (laughs) i will think about that
3: i was thinking that you're in this amazing period i mean obviously it was a horrible moment and that question we said if we sunk who would care you kind of know who cares you know you literally in this acute moment of trauma know who your immediate constituents and supporters are so that's a wonderful thing already i think The other thing I really like about collections is uh, how totally idiosyncratic they are. You know, anyway, they're they're not encyclopedic, even if the Tate's pretty good at it. You know, they are idiosyncratic things, collections, and that's fascinating, and that means that there's limits to them. I mean, I'm already obsessively thinking about the whole idea of feminism and what would be the contemporary sort of... um, disciplines and epistemologies that are sort of being produced around that you know the limits or the cause for your existence in the first place how would you translate those questions for now that sounds fantastic and then the other thing is of course yeah the great capacity of digitization and trying to recuperate what one can and places like salt in istanbul where i'm going tomorrow are really making this um very sharp demand for no more collecting, like really the notion of the archive that in a sustainable new world when we can digitize and share knowledge and reuse knowledge, why do we need more objects? Why do we need more things? So there are many radical practices, many people who are reevaluating these ideas, mm. and maybe c- sharing things that you find relevant with other institutions. I think, I think, yeah, it's an amazing moment of looking back and forth that you, you could be in. Mm. Yeah. I agree,
1: <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Yeah, it's c- really interesting, as as David said, that, you know, it's it's impossible to, to recreate and <coughs> that perhaps you shouldn't or you can't. But also it's uh, it's a question of, did you exist because of the collection? Um, apparently not, because you're still here. Okay. So that's also th- the thing, that, uh, what's not only the, the function of the role for of the collection for the program, but f- for the identity, for the museum, and should it take a different kind of route? perhaps uh, in what kind of way? Is it uh, like the physical works or something more software? But it's also an opportunity to engage with the audience and sort of like a discussion of the meaning of, of graphic ensues and uh, the importance of the collection or not in what kind of directions you're going to take. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks. This is going to be a great evening for me, <laughs> gathering all this knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically,
4: I mean, I, I will just join my colleagues here because, as I said before, perhaps this is an opportunity for you to ask questions to your audience, what they want yeah. this to be, you know, and make it a collective initiative, for instance, no? um, which will also be reinforced for some of these ideas. No? <laughs> if it's already from the public, for the public, um, um, Already will embrace uh, this notion of audience. Already will embrace um, uh, who are you are addressing your your experiences to. Because I will say, um, not only for the digital, not only for all the advances that we have now, but I, but because I think collecting should be also an opportunity to bring experiences. Right? What happened to you, um, as colleagues were saying, you still exist because there is something beyond the object. Right? You are not an object-centred institution, at least not anymore. And perhaps why don't we build something? No, why don't you build something from that perspective, from something that is more experiential, that has to do with the community that surrounds your project, no? And use that as a way of engaging with, you know, share collections and and other kind of experience that are available now that perhaps at the beginning of the foundation of your institution were not and i think if one does that then it makes it really um i had to say that i am becoming for a while then i will go back to the object and to fine art but for a long while um, i just was too attached to the stories right what are the stories that people can tell perhaps you can do a project that think about what people remember of your collection where are the you know the works they have seen and uh and they they would like to be reenacted or just you know just reproduce them, I don't know, all
1: these things. Lovely, thanks a lot. (laughs) 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 So um, we have time for, we're running a bit over time because we started a bit later, but for a couple of questions, of course.
6: Louise Lindström, I have a question. Uh, You haven't mentioned digital registration, or whatever you call it. I mean, many of the museums and collections are digitizing their collections so that they will be available uh, worldwide. Of course, to see something digitally is not the same thing as seeing the object or experience it itself. But anyway, it will give a possibility of uh, looking at it or, or uh, taking part of it. That's one thing. Then, of course, there is also the participation artworks today are not always stationary. It, it takes, mm, uh, it, it requires the, the, the participation of, of the viewer or, or, the, b- or the visitor. And Tekniska Högskolan here in Stockholm, they have tried to have a virtual room that you actually walk into. And that is going to be develop as far as I understand uh, also as an artwork, that you walk into the artwork and by doing that you change the artwork. The, in the process, so there are many new ways of of doing things, and if you compare it with, f- for instance, advertising, w- the first ads uh, on film they had three minutes or ten minutes or whatever. Now there are three seconds, so the time span for this type of experiences is also different and changes. So the question is, uh, you haven't mentioned the the um, the digital aspect of this I
7: thought
2: oh, I did. but y- <laughs> you did it now <laughs> thank you i don't know i mean it's uh, we, we are seeing quantum leaps in terms of uh, technology and resolution and all of that and i i, I assume that in the future uh, very soon you will be able to have not only information but actual uh, experiences from the digital and then you have this other part, which we all work with on a daily basis, which has to do with the collection, with all the data, with all those things. And of course, in that sense, it's also a, a leap from index cards with uh, lousy images and all of that. <laughs> but I mean, these are two things. One is the research, accessibility of the research, and the other is really... Uh, and, and we, of course, know that the moving images, which is video art, or video uh, is very suitable. The issue is just, is there other things that that really can feel that you have some of the qualities? Because I think in this discussion with the archives, with the index, with the copies, uh, who made the copies of soluit uh, Superflex. You know? uh, super Superflex, okay. They are Danish, so that's... Really <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, with all of that, still, I need to, uh, to give kind of an expression towards the original object. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't forget that. We, we can load it with so much uh, information, everything like that, contextual, political, everything like that. But there is a certain aspect, at least for me, mm-hmm. when this magic, uh, when you are in front of, of the original idea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and hopefully that will not be able to be duplicated. That's why you... Had a Picasso in Ramallah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, sure. there exactly. There were yeah. the
3: two, exactly the two sides of the same coin. Exactly, mm. exactly. I agree. Yeah. But
4: I think, I think it has to be. I mean, I think it's a very important question. Uh, not owning the object, but having the object, like presenting the public with that experience. I think, without visiting museums, uh, the artist's the studios, we as a curator have an incredible advantage for in front of everybody else, no? Because we, we live. Sometimes we touch all these things, and I. I think one has to preserve that experience because that is also extremely important Mm -hmm. and then give accessibility to it and the information that it it provides.
7: Please. Thank you very much. Um, My question goes mainly to David. Um, I just wondered, you wanted to have a museum or an exhibition space where you show art which previously had no chance maybe to be on display in Stockholm but now the museum landscape changed, and also maybe you got older, you have gathered um, a collection, and how are your thoughts for the future? I mean, it's different when you have a um, state organization where you know that someone will come after you, but here there's um, the problem, are you satisfied because you said you filled the gap? Now maybe others can take over, but but you also said you like the collection as it is, you want to, re- that it, it remains intact. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about the future of this collection and... Yeah.
2: I, I hear what you're saying and it's not one question <laughs> you are phrasing, you are phrasing uh, uh, many, many questions and and it, they are all extremely valid. And of course we are looking at those aspects of uh, collecting and, and I don't in no way felt ever that I filled a gap, I, I just I just had a kind of an opportunity to add something. And please remember that it, it had nothing to do with chronologically, it had nothing to do with being uh, in vogue somehow, it just had to do with trying to introduce artistry or thoughts that might not have been able to, to succeed in, in larger institutions where you have to look at certain other elements. Uh, which we didn't talk about today, which has to do with the amounts of of visitors and and all the revenue and everything like that. The collection in itself, is a big headache, of course, uh, and it's a huge joy, it's both. But the ownership in itself uh, might not be so complicated. There are other institutions that maybe one day would love to have some of what we have and it makes sense. And I'm a strong believer in the university system. Uh, I think, uh, in particular, the universities here in Sweden are, are are very poor when it comes to the, to the connection to the objects and to the to the visual arts. We have much greater example in the U.S. and in the U.K. and I don't know how it is in Holland, but here it's it's really, I- it's about books, it's about something else. But it's not. so th- there is a lot of different thoughts and ideas. where an experiment like magazine three can continue, but maybe transform into another, another structure. And that's why we, over all these years, have avoided uh, all these other things that you can easily get caught up into, which I stated before. And we are uh, basically uh, only content driven and try to accommodate in a reasonable way our visitors. I didn't answer all the questions,. <laughs> <but I can>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's fine. Thank you, thank, thank you you so well. much for joining us this evening, and thanks a lot to the panel. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank, thank you. you.